welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Lauren Lake. And I'm Eric Snyder. Today we have Robin Colosimo, who was just named the Director of Policy and Legislation for the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works. That is quite a mouthful to talk about how policy is made in the Corps and the administration. Robin, thanks for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. So, Robin, you've had a pretty unique career. I think you were in the Corps. You've been at the Secretary's Office. Um, but before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and, and how you have came into your new role? So I moved around, actually. My father worked for the Corps of Engineers, and so I think I moved six times before I was 11, following him around different Corps locations, right, so various places throughout the country. But I was born in Virginia, moved in, into various places, and then when I was 11, my dad had an offer at SWD or to stay in Virginia, and my family and I honestly voted on Virginia, even though there was a pool in Texas, and just saying. But the truth is, is that I was always exposed to engineering, and along the way, I actually spent eight formative years in New Jersey, and that will be important when I describe my sort of outlook on, on the way you think about things. A lot of former boss actually said that I should tell everybody that I was spent eight formative years in New Jersey. That's the big picture of where I came from. But um, in terms of broadest exposure, you know, I remember my dad being around a lot of engineering studies, and it led me to become an engineer. And that's kind of largely how it happened. Career path-wise, I think you're right. I've led a pretty unconventional career. I will say most of it has been without design. I've had over 32 years' experience that includes diverse leadership, supervisory, and policy background. But I started in the private sector, worked for a small company, and then moved to a large company, decided I really didn't like the feel of either, uh, mostly transportation projects, some water projects. And then I actually moved into government service in Baltimore District, where I was there for 10 years. And I realized early on that, that I, every three years or so, I needed a new challenge. And so by the end of 10 years, I decided on a whim to apply to headquarters, came to planning. And since that time, my world has really opened up. And, and I have served in the White House for a year at the National Economic Council. I've worked at the Council of Environmental Quality in the Executive Office of the President for almost three years. Um, in the last eight years at the Assistant Secretary's Office, but 12 years um, in total at Corps Headquarters. And so it's been really a unique set of experiences. I do have a master's degree in, in policy and undergraduate in engineering, as I already mentioned, and a professional engineer by training. Um, and I'd say the biggest thing for me is Folks most often talk about how candid I am about information. Um, I'm a very honest broker. Um, I'm also really uh, strategic about things because I'm competitive about capitalizing on opportunities to improve, whether that's executing a project or modernizing a policy. So it's kind of the big picture of who I am and where I came from. Great. Thank you, Robin. Through your experiences, you mentioned your different roles uh, in the administration and with the courts. You have definitely worked on the development of policy and have seen the different ways that policy is formed. Can you describe your view on policy broadly? Do you view policy as inherently flexible or inherently rigid? Simply speaking, I think policies derive from law, executive office directions, or like the executive office, the president, or sometimes court actions. It's also true it's sometimes informed by other agencies, right, that have an impact on the course civil works. But policy should be very informative in terms of guiding actions to achieve a desired outcome, right? So in 
theory, a lot of that comes from some of our direction in WERDA in very simplistic forms. Although WERDA generally has a lot of narrow provisions around a project, there are broader policy initiatives that you could look to there. All of these things, all these policies, whether they're broad policies, whether they're fiscal policies or technical policies, are intended to drive an outcome that we apparently are not achieving now. And why I say apparently is often they are to correct some former approach. There's not, there's more of a modernization in policy than there is really true new policy these days. I will say from the rigid or flexible, good policy stops short of being procedural and detailed. It should cover what I would say is 70 to 80% of most situations by design in the policy direction it's intended to achieve. And that way, it strikes that balance of not being overly rigid in a way that doesn't allow innovation, but yet not being so flexible that you actually don't know where to start. So we still want to inspire good thoughts and cover most of our work by any big policy, but we want to leave area for gray areas of execution and policy discretion on the aegis. Yeah, that, that's good, Robin. I definitely can appreciate the, the gray areas of policy, and I've always viewed policy as, you know, it's inherently flexible. Um, it gives you the sideboards to work within, but, you know, if you're able to find the solution within those sideboards, you can be, you know, set yourself up in the organization to be successful. So having that flexibility, you did mention that, uh, you know, kind of tying it to process, and, and I think we'll get to this in a little bit, but, you know, the, the policy and process and kind of wondering, do you think those are one and the same? Should they be different? And, and really, what is ASA's role in developing um, those policies, you know, and processes as well. So one really important thing about good policy is making sure it's forward-looking, right? And so procedurally, you want it to be informed by the, the things that have happened in the past, but yet looking forward to the objective we're trying to achieve. So sometimes the objective we're trying to achieve is corrective action, but sometimes it's actually a redirection into a new area, right? And that may be a function of a new administration. But we want the past challenges to be lights of how maybe we struggled while thinking about all the good opportunity before us. In that regard, I'd say that the Secretary's Office in Developing Policy really is derived from the fact that that's where our policy level leadership is, where our political leaders are. That's consistent with every other agency is policy oversight comes from the political appointees governed by that current administration. That doesn't mean policy is political, but it does send signals about priorities in policymaking. So John, generally speaking, I think the Secretary's Office has not only oversight of policy, but should be providing the broadest policy direction in any area. Sometimes that policy direction actually is to not pursue something that may have been a priority in a prior administration. It may be shifting priorities. It may be a new policy arena. Um, but in all cases, the core and ASACW should be working together to develop policy, but they should be doing it in a way that's more about how to to do it, right? How can we take advantage of the opportunity that a policy opportunity presents to itself, right? I will say that my personal view is that you'll sometimes see a policy need come from the core, and it's based on some very specific experiences, and the Secretary's office is always going to be open to that. It's a question of whether it fits within the current administration and vice versa. We may be sending a signal that the core hadn't thought about. And so in that regard, we should always work well together in this space. I have to admit, this is something that I think has not been as optimal as it has been in the past decades. And it's something I'm actually passionate about because I think collaboration helps us all understand the impetus for policy and what success looks like. So it is an area I want to prioritize here over the next few years. Yeah, Robin, that, that's interesting. I, I wanted to 
talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the agency? Because it seems like the core and the Office of the Assistant Secretary have a, a unique relationship, whereas a lot of times these policy decisions are coming from within one agency, but it's almost like, you know, separate entities and, and oversight there with the Secretary's office um, with the core. You know, so really the question is, how do the core and ASA's office work together when making policy to make sure that everything's synchronized? So I think for me, it's, it's, it's somewhat simplistic, honestly. It's, synchronization um, requires, first of all, a level of trust, right, and a level of understanding of each other's perspectives. But right along with that comes the need for acceptance of what can be achieved in the window of opportunity for you. Most often, we're misaligned because we don't take the time to communicate and collaborate and figure out the how-to. And so I spent a lot of time in my career based on the things I've been exposed to in the last 15 years on focusing on the how-to of an opportunity and just honestly recognizing the things that we can't touch, but focusing on the positive, right? And, and I think some portion of that is also about not being afraid of lawsuits. A large portion of our inhibition around policy has been about a fear of future lawsuits or not heeding the guidance from past lawsuits. We certainly need to be informed by counsel, but it shouldn't always inhibit our ability to think broadly about things. So I think for me, in the end, collaboration comes more from getting back to that partnering and sharing experiences. I will also admit that it comes to uh, less reliance, not less reliance on the Hill. We rely on the Hill a lot, right? We have great productive relationships with them. I don't believe we have a strong relationship with administration, the administration, and particularly our sister agencies where we can better broach the broader policy arena issues. And that's an area we need to strengthen for the core, for Army Civil Works, because it will help us. It will help us execute with the Hill. It will help us execute with an administration. And, And that's a place I think we have fallen down collectively. Yeah, that's a good point, Robin. You know, so you're talking about the a new administration, and uh, you've worked for for previous administrations, actually, a, a few of them on on both sides of the aisle, and working for the White House under those administrations. What insights can you provide on how the White House decides and develops policy, and and what potential insights can you give us uh, for the incoming administration as we look towards the Biden administration coming on here in 2021? So I will say that, you know, to your point, I've been in a White House setting twice, Um, again, not by design. In neither case did I pursue those opportunities. But in both cases, I was asked to go to pursue a policy inclination or challenge around the Corps of Engineers. And it was my candor that actually led me there because a large portion of my career has been focused around translating the core, right? We don't really speak the same language as other agencies. It's also true that we don't have a cabinet member when there's infrastructure meetings um, with any president that talks about the core equities. Um, and the reason I raise that is that in working in the White House system, it is it's probably been the most fascinating work of my career, and it's less because of what I have done, but more what I've been able to do, observe and bring back to the office, which is that we, we often, as an engineering agency, uh, feel like our challenges are unique to us, and, and in fact, they're not, right? We don't spend a lot of time in the same way other agencies do, in part because of their cabinet officials, rolling up our sleeves and figuring out how to solve problems, and in fact, there is a whole policy deliberation process that's really not a place the core gets invited to until too late often. So there's policy processes that involve the policy leadership from agencies 
and they meet on priority issues and figure out the how-to and what to advance and what good policy looks like to achieve the outcomes they want. And when we're at the table, we can help protect our equities or offer some things up. What I would say about all of that is I find that process to be very collaborative. And when you're honest in that process about challenges, you both educate and inform somebody about your equities, but you do it in a way that allows us to shape policy that meets a broader need. And sometimes it's our regulatory equities as much as it is our project building and delivery equities. This is an area that routinely in the last, I guess, now 12 years, I, I have been known sort of to the White House folks as the Robin will answer the phone and hear the policy incoming and be willing to try and understand what they're achieving and then be able to describe what I think the core's equities is and how we can parlay that into good for the nation. So it's been a really great experience, and I think anybody who has the challenge should always pursue that, honestly. Well, did you want to expand at all on, on any insights that you've seen for the incoming administration? Any oh, policy sure. insights? So in terms of policy insights for the, the current administration, what's, what's fascinating about this go-around is so much of the Biden administration is a repeat in terms of the kinds of people within the, that were in the Obama administration. And so I was privileged to be in many, many meetings with those folks. And so while some of them hold different positions, we know a lot about the inclinations of, of the administration, both publicly and what they've said, but, but they've done in the past. So I have been saying for a long time that the convening office in any administration is what you want to know. Who's going to be the convening office? for uh, an incoming administration. And Obama administration, it was the Council on Environmental Quality. And I knew that would be the case in this administration. And that's very clear that from the person they've nominated, who was general counsel in the Obama administration, they had a very strong interest in environmental justice, social justice. And so that, that was a huge initiative that really didn't get across the finish line in the way they wanted to in the Obama administration. That's going to be priority one. I think priority two is always going to be some level of an infrastructure bill, right? The question is, what is that infrastructure bill? In the last administration, it was much more about streamlining, removing regulatory malaise, if you will, that there were too many regulations that were interact interacting poorly. And so they were streamlining about staying within the laws, but trying to make sure decisions were made at the same time by the associated regulatory agencies, right? So one federal decision. I would say that kind of thing is probably cleaned up for both administrations. I wouldn't expect Mustard that to go back or swing away. But I would expect a lot more discussion around grants and loans, right? And if you look at the nominee for DOT secretary, you know, that comes from a community and has had some infrastructure challenges, I think you're going to see much more of a shift towards more urban kinds of projects that are much more challenging, particularly in the climate arena. And climate change has been a priority for every administration. They call it different things. Um, we advanced a lot in the Obama administration. We have always used good science to inform um, our decision-making for the public and for the taxpayer. I think that will continue. I think it's an opportunity for us to continue to advance work. We will continue to have a problem with things like adaptive management, however. There are a lot of other signals I could talk to um, out there. One in particular I would note was tribal, certainly from the nominee for Secretary of Interior. We know a lot about the tribal interests and Interior's role in that process. And we have some things, actually, I think that the agency collectively um, has been interested in advancing. And so those four areas are probably the big ones, I would say, that we should start thinking and organizing for. And that's the key, organizing before our nominee shows up. 
Because our nominees generally don't come in for eight months, sometimes as much as a year and a half. So we need to be organizing our efforts now and getting them packaged in a way that when our bosses arrive, our new leadership arrives, we can be responsive and help them catch up because many other offices will have their political nominees in place long before we will. So we'll be in catch-up mode. Thanks, Robin. I think that's pretty interesting. So you did talk a little bit about the need to have, you know, strong relationships with other federal agencies. Um, you talked about the core, you know, not being at the cabinet level and also about the Council of Environmental Quality and the policy perspective there. One glaring issue within the water world seems that there's really no unified national water policy or approach. Uh, it seems like a lot of different agencies play in this realm. I was kind of wondering, you know, what's your view on national water policy from the highest level? And um, do you see a need for consolidation of those policies or um, kind of is, uh, is it working now the way it's supposed to with, with a lot of different players in the water world? So this has been a conversation, as you know, for a long time. There's been um, decades worth of folks saying we need a national water policy. I have never been a proponent of that personally. Um, I think when you try and have a perfect policy, you end up with a lot of competing interests, and, and it's more than challenging. And I'm not sure really, honestly, it achieves the outcome what people want. And what people really want is they want consistency and alignment among the agencies, right? And what I would say has been really powerful and perhaps some of the most fascinating work of my career in this administration was the creation of the water sub-cabinet. And essentially, that is a, a lot like the Water Resources Council, which still exists on the books, but was zero-funded decades ago. But it's those policy officials who are in water across the federal government that convene. The deputies convene every week and the principals every three weeks, at least in this administration. I would expect the next administration will still find value in that concept because simply aligning and talking on a regular basis around water issues and how agencies can support one another in their efforts, both efficient because people have better perspective on it when they're talking about it, but it also allows alignment of resources in a way that leverages outputs for the taxpayer. Those priority areas would change in any administration. I'd see more in climate in this coming administration, certainly, and like I said, maybe urban stuff. But I think there's going to be a huge area around water no matter what who the president is. And so that water subcabinet has no legal authority. It's basically a collaborative set of policy officials, and like it has just been the most powerful thing I've ever seen. Um, as an example, we were able to, through that forum, navigate the beginning support for the Corps to stand up uh, our first ever loan program. Without the water sub-cabinet, that would not have ever happened. They had to help us build that support. Saw unconventional support from the Department of Interior in terms of the Corps' work in, in the Everglades. Concurrently, we, the Army and Corps, actually supported other agencies and in their initiatives through the water sub-cabinet um, in things like water reuse, which where we don't have a big footprint, but we could understand what was being lifted up and how things and work we had under underway would be helpful. And a particular area of interest that I think will always continue is uh, work around modeling as it relates to uh, flooding and droughts and all the normal meteorological things, and that's been an area of continued growth in prior administrations as well. Um, so I, to me, that's what good policy making looks like, and that's the place where we get captured. And in fact, that executive order was specifically written to make sure Army Civil Works was in the executive order, because that's where we get left off. Hey, Robin, I think that's really helpful. I mean, it really points to the fact that, you know, we as federal agencies need to be able to work with other federal agencies, especially when we play in the same areas. 
and making sure we have that communication so we don't confuse the public. And, and you know, the stronger we can have those relationships, the better. Um, you know, more on the, the front of, of policy, in, in particular for the core, is the Word of Bills, uh, Water Resources Development Act. We talked with Dave Weathington earlier this year about, you know, how language gets in those bills and the process that goes into that. But, you know, with Congress recently passing the Water Resources Development Act as part of the appropriations bill, just wanted to, you know, get your insights as to how important are these word of bills um, for the Corps of Engineers and for the water resources mission um, of the agency? I mean, they're hugely important for us because they are our main authorizing legislation, right? So every agency has a main legislative vehicle that authorizes their programs on a some kind of recurring inter interval. A, a difference for us in our authorization is that it's segregated from appropriations decision and therein lies most of the core's challenges, right, is, is distinctly different decision-making of what we authorize and what we appropriate. That said, there's a huge importance to having a regular cycle of WERDAs to resolve problems that were perhaps created in prior um, WERDAs that were unintentional or unanticipated, so there's a corrective form to that. There's a proactive form to it, which is to lean forward and think about new emerging areas of policy. There's generally sections in there that are continuing to try and fix and modernize continual areas of policy that are a source of controversy, sometimes helpful, sometimes not, but it's obviously providing another signal for where policy is important to continue to roll up your sleeves around. And then, of course, the last but not the least of which is the both the authorization and deauthorization of, of civil works projects, right? Without authorization, we can't move those projects forward. Um, and so wrapping up what is often decade-long investigations and technical work is important for us to advance those projects on behalf of those communities that need those services. Can't say enough about the importance of getting projects authorized in an aggressive timeline to meet the taxpayers' needs for whatever their challenges, water challenges are that they're facing. Great. Thank you, Robin. And you talked about the importance of water bills and, and the policy that's within them, but that's not where it stops. Um, then the core and the ASA's office has to develop guidance on how, how we actually implement those policies. How does that come about? How do our existing policies interact with new WERDA bills and the policy that is set forth within those? How does that world work going forward once a new WERDA bill is passed? Um, so very timely question. You know, this is something I haven't played in in a very long time, honestly. Um, and so actually just last week, I was getting reread into how we handled Word of 18, um, and there was a lot of good success around that. It had a lot to do with actually setting the team up, right, secretary's office core, um, having deliberate stakeholder engagement, having specific timelines, having prioritized actions for, by tier of which ones we wanted to do first and, and as we moved along. And, and those criteria varied, right, by the bill you had before you. I think we will look to replicate that experience. I haven't looked at actually the entire Word of Bill yet. I've heard about some key sections, and so I think it's important to not only get the word to pass, it's important to get that team up and running soon. And so we have an SOP that I'm just getting ready to read and, and hoping here in the next two weeks we're going to get that team together and start figuring out the how-to. How are we going to move out? How are we going to do this with our limited resources and under tight timelines? And also to be organized for stakeholder engagement. And that's really important, right? People having visibility on what it is and what it isn't and that we're paying attention. Some portion of that stakeholder engagement will be listening to the help. Right, so we're gonna have to find a way to not overplay our hand by listening to one party. We need to be deliberative, but we also need to be time sensitive. And that's 
always our challenge, whether it's a project um, we're taking on or a policy that we're investigating. Great, thank you. That was a good point about our partners and, and stakeholders, and they obviously play a role in the, you know, shaping the policy that goes into the word of bill. And then, you know, we want to make sure where appropriate, we reflect um, their needs as well. And so what do you view as the role that others play in policy and guidance development? You know, from, I know a lot of this happens at the national headquarters level, um, but what does the role of core leadership and staff uh, play into policy development as well as our stakeholders and partners external to the agency? So there's input for everybody in through this process. Some, it's going to be much more intense and deliberative, right? So the larger sections of WERDA that are more complex or far-reaching or even potentially in conflict with current procedures or laws, those are going to rise to rulemaking. And so they're going to be more uh, deliberative through the rulemaking process in terms of what we have to carry out. But our initial implementation guidance may simply state that there will be rulemaking and here's the general policy direction that we'll take. Rulemaking is got its own outreach and we don't want to compete with that, but we certainly want to inform any draft rule we make. And so we will want our own stakeholder engagement um, to start hearing folks' issues. Now, what's important though about all of that is making sure that we are open and transparent about hearing input, but we have to be careful about how far we go and folks believing that they get to review drafts in advance of rulemaking, right? So we will always need to outline which kind of sections go to rulemaking and whether there's a deliberative review process required by any section. And so that's what I mean when I say we have to look at the bill, figure out which ones fall into what category and what that means in terms of input. We may have a whole series of sections that revolve around a topic, let's say water supply, and we do targeted outreach to stakeholders around water supply supply broadly around some sections versus maybe some that are broader in, in nature about the whole civil works program and how we make decisions, and that would be a broader set of rulemaking focus. So there's a lot of variations here, but the intent is to make sure folks have an avenue to be heard, just like when we go through the NEPA process, um, but stop short of undercutting any rulemaking that in a way that's heavy-handed to any one party. We want to be transparent and open, and we want those phone lines to be accessible for all. Thanks, Robin. Like you, I, I find this really fascinating. I have a, a background in education and policy, so I think this is what I could listen to for hours every day. But um, I suspect <laughs> most of our listeners probably don't fall into the policy wonk category, and, you know, they might just be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of guidance that we have. And you look at it, you get, you know, a word of bill, you know, so it's been running every two years. You get executive orders. You know, the agency is trying to change our guidance. But we issue guidance in a whole bunch of different ways, and it seems like it could be really overwhelming to somebody coming into the organization or even somebody who's been within the organization for 20 years to, to know where this guidance is at and understand the direction. Uh, and just kind of wondering, like, you know, what advice would you have to new employees coming in and, and what should they do to learn about guidance and policy and how this works? Um, but also, is there anything that the agency should be doing better um, to make sure that we're able to share this guidance and information with both internally and externally? So first thing I will say is about the new employees or new to the agency uh, folks, the most important thing is really just forming those relationships. I mean, I know it's cliche, but it's true, is that I think that policies and guidance and materials and websites are important, but what's really more important is understanding how they apply and how they apply to the situations that those folks have, have faced in their career. And 
every application is slightly different. It's less about the, what is common and often more about the, the why it's different in any situation where you learn something, right? So you want to understand the rails, if you will, on, on the guidance on what the tried and true is, but what are the things we have discretion on to inform decision makers? And, and most importantly, we need to make sure that employees and, and our partners, because they are cost-sharing in these projects, understand where their input is and what are the bounds on our authority, whether it's a study authority or a project authority, what are the things we can implement and what's that how-to to put things out there, including locally preferred plans, right? So we want to be in a collaborative zone, making sure folks get connected. And those are there's many forums that folks can do that traditionally and, and looking forward. And actually, I think these inside the castles are going to be huge for a lot of new employees. Beyond that, though, what I would say is that, you know, when you're talking about guidance and rulemaking and the volume we have out there. I don't know how many people know, but it's the source of a lot of controversy, both within OMB and within DOD. And there was a recent executive order, this number I don't recall, that has everything to do with this, is that we have, not just we, the federal government has so much guidance out there. And one of the things we're good at is creating materials. We're not great at taking them down or, or modernizing them in a strategic way. And it's a, it's a heavy lift. I'm not gonna underestimate that. But we in the core have been particularly under the focus. We have more documents than any other agency at this point in time, is my understanding, but by many fold. And I think part of it is just simply a, an analysis of what needs to be rescinded because it's in conflict with newer guidance, or we have taken too much effort to create what I'll call cookbooks, where we have repeated guidance that exists in national policy. NEPA is a great example. We have so many NEPA policies out there at the district and, and different levels. And now that there's a new final rule, in many ways, much of that needs to be looked at to decide what conflicts with the new NEPA rule, right? We are in the process of doing new rulemaking for both civil works and regulatory to conform with the final rule. And one of the guidelines we're going in with is don't repeat anything from the rule, right? We need to start a different behavior that makes it simpler, that folks go to the originating source of a rule or a guideline understand that context and don't see conflicting or slightly different worded language in some of our core or Army Civil Works materials that makes folks think that there's an intentional difference there, right? So in the big picture, I think simplifying, condensing, trying to, to get at the 80% of what we know covers most of our situations, but having some gray areas in our rulemaking where folks can see how their problem might be solved differently. We want to re leave room for that. It will be a big effort to streamline all this. There's a DOD task force, and we have some hard deadlines, and it will be a very challenging set of work we will be doing hand-in-hand -hand with the Corps. And I'm, I'm well aware that folks feel pressure for it, but I also see huge opportunity in this for cleaning up our books and maybe even modernizing what we do. You know, some of these guidance notebooks we have out there, maybe they become electronic instead of something that is that's more interactive versus the how-to or what step to do where good opportunity to reinvent and think with the future in mind. Yeah, that, that certainly will be a heavy lift to, to make sure the guidance gets up, updated. And, and I know working as part of the revolutionized civil works team and trying to be innovative and, and push for change, and, and a lot of times it's just simplification and, you know, trying to uh, take a more streamlined approach. But what we do hear people say is that, you know, they can't take innovative actions because of policy, or they say no to an idea because it's not compliant with policy. In reality, it's like what we want to do is be able to change this guidance to allow for innovation, 
but what approach should folks take today in the staff level to be able to be innovative within policy? And when they do run into those roadblocks of no, uh, is there something in particular they should be doing when they have those innovative ideas? So I think it depends upon the situation, right? But in general, I will say that one of my biases is to have a quick look back um, and then look forward. And the reason I say that is that often when folks say it's not policy compliant, it's usually based on a personal experience with some specific series of projects or individual projects in, in a reviewer or a peer reviewer or, or a higher authority experience set. And those inform the way we think about policy, but a lot of times our tendency is to make sure that we don't repeat that mistake that may or may not be relevant to the case at hand. So you have that situation, but you also have the other situation, which is truly there's something unique about the study we're being undertaking. Maybe we are going beyond the traditional core equities, but there's a reason the uh, region wants us to include more detailed water quality analysis. And so in those cases, we also need to ask for guidance and we need to tee up the policy issue. And we need not to do it late. We need to have the discussions early and often. Um, and we need to be clear about what we can and can't do in those situations. And so those guide rails are really important. It's equally important to say what the opportunity is. It's also equally important to be abundantly clear about whether we can implement. And that latter part is the area I think that we really struggle with. We think we are abundantly clear about projects and locally preferred plans and whether we can cost share them fully and what it means as an example to allow advanced payment for a project and whether we really do ever reimburse those funds as an example of a recurring policy issue. There's just sort of these misconceptions that occur when we go into these gray areas that we need to be clearer about in helping folks achieve the outcomes they're intending to uh, address. Thanks, Robin. You know, we have covered a lot of information today, and I know that this um, was helpful for me and will definitely be helpful to folks out there to better understand uh, policy and, and how um, it's shaped and how it's implemented. But before we wrap up, I have to return back to the beginning of our conversation because you talked about some formative years in New Jersey, and I feel like we have to go back to that <laughs> to really understand really understand how that uh, shaped your, your outlook on, on your career and, and on your life. So I don't, most people just tell me that there are a few things that, that uh, describe the way I think about it. And when they hear I came from Jersey, they're like, oh, right, that. And what it, what it really is, is a bit more of that um, New Jersey edge, if you will, that I'm very forthright. I, I tend to hear things and tell people what I think. And what, what I don't understand and ask those questions that others may be a bit more risk averse, if you will, about. And so that's kind of what I mean about those formative years is that I am largely speaking risk averse about being thrown into any situation and being willing to listen and tell folks what I know and what I don't know and bring back problems or do that on behalf of my bosses as well as the Corps of Engineers. So I have been blessed that people see me as a trusted advocate of listening, taking it in being strategic, thinking about it, being brutally honest, that's the Jersey part, but trying to position the agency for success. And in that regard, I've been blessed to have directors of civil works, the deputy commanding general for the CEO for many years, as well as the chief of engineers and um, the ASACW in the last 12 years. I've been able to navigate between them and represent both of them in different settings in any administration, simply knowing a meeting needing to be covered and walking out with a 
oh, there's an opportunity and being able to help them shape that. And so in large part, I will say that mo when I say my career has achieved things that I never designed, it's been that. I've been willing to go to a meeting and walk in completely blind often on an hour's notice because we don't have the policy depth at the political pointy level of other agencies, but we need to be at the table. And so I'm willing to go to the table, as Ms. Darcy used to tell me, go to the table, represent the agency, hear what we need to hear, and then tell me what we need to do. And, and so that's what we all need to do and not be afraid of. It, it's been some fascinating work and it's been some fascinating opportunities. In each case, it's led to me having an executive office assignment that I never designed to do, but because I saw an opportunity and I was asked to do it. And so it's been quite a ride. Thanks, Robin. You know, speaking of, of formative years, it's always important, I think, too, as you, you meet people throughout your career to, to make sure you make a good impression at first. And I know our paths have crossed, um, you know, really within my first couple months on the job. So uh, you were one of my, my teachers in the class I was attending. So um, the fact that we've, you know, been able to come full circle and work together so closely now in the last few years has been really awesome and a good experience. But I do want to thank you for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights on policy. To our listeners, we want to hear from you, what topics are important to you, and what people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.